What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. We've just, he's sitting right here in front of us <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck. in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're just, fuck him. We're just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client we'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been paying us. the bed. He's doing it right now, so we, <laughs> we may as well tell people that if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine suticles. Yep. The best canine suticles. Premium grade. Yep. Human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. It's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes. In Canada. In Canada. Yes. Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? It's puppy class. Puppy class. Yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara DeGroote. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love She just Barbara. loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that literally is the things called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We appreciate it. Thank you, Barbara. You. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound dog boxes. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the – did we talk about this? Have we done an We have. Since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I travelled from – where did you pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally he it's does it. Deal. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well, like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. <laughs> Dog Club. Dog Club, Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got It's a there. great facility. Get yes. in, check it out. He does all the, all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. You yeah, know? he's got some cool artwork yeah, and stuff there. Check yeah. it out for yeah, sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We've got a new one. Who we got? Tailored Canines. We have too. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and away <laughs> we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, check it out. Tailored so they canines. do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. So thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> do reach out to us. <laughs> Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes. But we do have to limit how many people we have. And so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser. And that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course. That's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still trying. Got shit <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barbara DeGroot. Amazing sugar mama, love her. From the heart dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy hound dog boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Dog clubs. Troppy Daniel. <laughs> Dog clubs. Australia. Yeah. And new to the family, tailored canines. Yeah. All the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah. Mo- do. Mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done. Well played. Thank you, sirs and madam. Check them out. They support us. You yeah. should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canon Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook, and joining us all the way from New Zealand, Gabby Mansbridge, who we talked about a little bit on the show recently because her dog blasted me into outer space when we did the uh, trial in New Zealand. <laughs> Gabby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was an interesting moment, wasn't it? <laughs> Not going to lie, I didn't tear at my heart a little bit, more for Pat than my dog. <laughs> I was okay. All's well that ends well. It was all fine. Exactly. So we were just over in New Zealand. We uh, went over there for the first ever New Zealand PSA trial that you guys did. And Gabby, you put on a pretty spectacular showing, got a really nice showing in your PDC and then got your first leg of a one, which is the first ever in New Zealand. You're the only person that's done it so far. So it's a huge accomplishment. It's a big pat on the back. And then as a result of talking about it, we had a bunch of people reach out to us and go, well, who is this fucking chick? Get her on the show. Let's talk to her. So here we are. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about what you do now. So you're a professional dog trainer now, but also do you still do the pack walk stuff? No. So I started out wanting to learn dog training, got a little bit of knowledge, but not enough that I felt like I could call myself a trainer or charge myself as such. So I agreed to help people if I could take their dogs for a walk and in turn only be paid, you know, a walking fee and see what I could do with their dogs really. I found that that worked really well. I found like dogs with issues did really amazing um, being taken out with my own personal dogs. They're very dog neutral and just exposure and training along the way. And it kind of calmed my nerves a little bit because I was so new to dog training. I didn't feel like capabilities yet. So it gave me time to work on these dogs the way I wanted Mm -hmm. to. And it kind of grew from there. People love the service they loved that their dogs could come out every week and it be, you know, continual training. A lot of people realize that their dogs, I mean, a lot of people's goals were for their dogs to be social, right, with other dogs. And that for a lot of people just wasn't going to be the reality. We could get their dogs neutral around other dogs, you know, walking past on leash, but the dog park dream was a little bit beyond that. Mm -hmm. They saw that their dogs were having a great time with me out with other dogs. Yeah, it kind of grew from there. The dogs learnt all sorts of life skills and eventually got staff and grew it from there. But 
we decided to sell our home in Auckland and pack social, which was the business, in mid last year so that we could move out to the country and start a new life. So we sold pack social to one of my staff members and yeah, we're kind of farmers in the middle of nowhere now, kind of doing the right. homesteading life, taking on some boarding trains and some boarding dogs, but also concentrating on the sports stuff, which is my real passion. Um, yeah, cool. And we're starting to breed Malinois as well for the sport in New Zealand. And yeah, we've got a little bit going on still and looking forward to seeing where it takes us. Give us a bit of a rundown on the dog culture in New Zealand. Because mm. I only know you guys. I don't know <laughs> the sort of broader industry there. I've done a couple of <laughs> seminars there. In fact, the first overseas seminar I did was the IGP club from New Zealand got yeah. me over. Bryce McNally uh, organized for me to come That's over right. through Cole. And so for me, that was, it was a big deal to me to be invited to come over. It was many, many years ago and got to meet all those guys and have watched, you know, you stay in touch with people online, you see the progressions and I've watched that a few people sort of break away from that. And that's what turned into mm. the PSA club. And, but what's been cool is what I see is that you guys are all cooperative. Everybody gets along in that space. So that's, yeah. that's good to see compared to other places yeah. around the world. But what I don't know is anything about the dog culture outside of that in New Zealand. I know that the pack walking is a big part of mm-hmm. what I've seen. I had this video of when I did a seminar there and they took me on the pack walk and there was like 150 dogs and I still get the shakes over it. And <laughs> and people constantly comment on that. Like when I travel, people will be like, oh, dude, I watched that video of you with those 150 dogs in New Zealand. That was madness. And I'm like, you're telling me it was madness, but not an <laughs> incident, like not a yeah. single problem. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so give us the rundown on dog culture in New Zealand. Where does someone get educated? What's the average dog trainer look like? How do they go about getting into that space? There's not a lot of qualifications within New Zealand, so you kind of have to go overseas. I think there's like a Unitech, which is kind of a basic dog care and training course Um, that's a year long but it doesn't give a huge amount of detail so you're kind of looking most of our professional trainers are going overseas to qualify a lot of people shadow under other trainers you know mentor under other trainers which is what I did Um, my mentor Sam Alderdice I don't know if you know Sam Mm -hmm. uh, he is down more Wellington ways he really specializes in like behavioral modification and dog on dog stuff. So that was kind of my foot up in the industry at the very start. I think it's more common now for people to be going overseas and qualifying. It's becoming a little bit more like possible. Whereas when I was starting out, I didn't even really know of any courses overseas. There was a couple of big ones that you kind of had to be living over there. So when you say overseas, do you mean here in Australia or you mean? Yeah, there's a couple in Australia. Yeah, there's some people going over to the States as well. I know there's some online courses now as well that people are investing in, which is amazing. I think if I was to go more again and be pushing for the dog training side in terms of pet dog training, I'd invest in something like that. It's just been quite a few years and my interest is going more into the sports stuff. So that's kind of where I'm putting my focus. And so the pack walking stuff that I went and did with those guys Am I right that you were kind of one of the early pioneers of that in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, meeting Sam and he was definitely, he taught me a lot in terms of, I guess, like the psychology and how their minds work and group dog stuff. And then I'm really into community. It's a big thing for me to be surrounded by people that are like-minded. So pretty early on, I 
found friendship and other dog walkers that were just doing dog walking in the city and you know taught them what I knew and they learned things and we taught each other and we had this amazing community which you will have met a lot of on your Mm -hmm. on your walk all really great people I've heard you guys talk about it before with dog trainers when things are going great you see like a huge influx in dog trainers it's kind of been the same with pack walking and you've got a few people that have joined and thought it would be easy and not really done it the right way, which I think has set the community back a wee bit in the eyes of the public, if that makes sense. You know, like so when you're controlling that many dogs, you've got to be doing it right. Yeah, let's explore that a little bit because that's one of the things that it gave me the heebie-jeebies <laughs> like, because I don't do that. It's so sure. far outside my wheelhouse. And absolutely, when I was there and they took me on that pack walk, it went perfectly. There was zero issues. It all went amazingly. But Mm -hmm. I can see there's a lot of room where that could be not the case. There's certainly circumstances where I could see it going really wrong. And I think Mm -hmm. as well, something that definitely happens outside our industry when people look in is they do Mm -hmm. the maths really wrong on a lot of things. You know, like uh, they might see a pack walk costs $40 and yep. they then look at someone with 10 dogs just wandering around having a nice day and go, oh, that guy's yeah. made 400 bucks today. Like, I, I want 400 bucks to take 10 dogs out for a walk for an hour. Absolutely. I'm going to just start doing that without mm-hmm. realizing there's a lot that goes into that. So can you talk us mm-hmm. through a little bit the, the development of that? And, you know, let's touch on some of the things that you've seen go wrong. You look at the pack sizes that we have, but those dogs have been coming out for years, right? Some of these dogs have been coming out with us for six years, and we've been putting countless hours of training into them. New people, as you say, join up. They think they can take out 10 dogs. They get 10 client dogs, and it all goes horrendously wrong. They're running away. They're rushing people, and they're kind of like, oh, but it looked easy in the videos. So it's always kind of been a fine line of what you show with it being cool and fun and easy, knowing that people are going to see it and think, oh, I can do that too. We really put the time and effort into each individual dog. Like there won't be a new dog come on for a few months. It'll be like really working on that dog. I think people don't realize how much dogs learn from each other. So you've already got a small group of trained, well-behaved dogs. They don't rush up to people. They do downstairs while people go past. And your new dog, although you still have to have a very strong bond and work individually on that dog, they also see the other dogs not doing silly shit. And you actually have a huge advantage there as well. So the dogs learn from the other dogs incredibly well, which is, yeah, we use to our advantage a lot. But you do have to have individual control of every single dog, of course. We always say, like, your pack is as weak as your weakest member or as strong as your weakest member, right? Because if one dog's going to break and be a dick, then you've got that, for want of a better word, pack mentality yeah. um, where the other dogs can split off and choose to do that incorrect thing as well. How important is your own dog in that sort of space? Like you're relying pretty heavily Um, on your own dog to help manage that pack for you? They're really old now. One's just passed away, but really strong obedience, very neutral with other dogs, neutral with people. And that's helped hugely. Over the years, it ended up being that the group sizes got a little bigger and my own dog started staying at home. Maybe one or two of my dogs would come out. But definitely at the start, having that solid base, and I think a lot of these pack walkers starting out don't have solid, stable dogs to be building off of, which it just makes it a lot harder as well. Mm. When you say the size has got a bit big, how many Mm. are we talking? What's the most that you've had 
in your own for bag. me for me being comfortable it would be like 10 to 12 that's not going to dog parks that's like going out to beaches going to the forest like pretty remote places and we would see other people would see hikers and bikers and horses and stuff but it's you know, like wide enough paths that we'd pull off to the side and all the dogs are taught a downstay. So they're put into a down, the members of the public walk past and it's all very under control. So I think the most that I ever took out was 15, 16, but that just started getting a little bit, not so much for the control aspect, but just for the numbers in my head. I find that I can look around and see if I have 10 to 12. When 15, 16, I have to start counting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make sure everybody's present. Yeah, um, pretty much. I just wanted to jump in on that conversation there. As I alluded to it in an earlier episode about your dog Falco, and I watched yep. a couple of clips with you galloping around the mountainside with your horse, and <laughs> you had a pack of yeah. probably about four or five dogs with you at the time, and Falco was one of them. Yeah. What I wanted to do here was bleed in the relationship between sports dogs and also the socialization pack work that you're actually doing because there's a lot yeah. of misrepresentation online and especially from some of our political advocates over here. We've got a political okay. group called the Animal Justice Party who I have a real professional okay. mistrust of because they're always okay. trying to align the worst case scenario in these situations. However, they don't invest a lot of time to actually look deeply into it and the skill set and the working capability Mm -hmm. that people like yourself, us, and many others in the community have with our dogs. Falco was a good example of that when I saw that clip. What I loved about that was you're in a drivey situation, you're galloping along on a horse, you've got four or five other dogs running all around you, and you came up to a bunch of cows with calves in a paddock and all the dogs were really well behaved. They were interested in what was going on, but it was a beautiful scenario. Those sort of things don't make headlines a lot because that's not really interesting. Mm -hmm. What tends to make headlines is when people have a mistake go wrong, when one of the dog goes rogue and something happens. That can happen. That's nature. Nature Mm -hmm. is unpredictable and things do happen from time to time. But more or less, that sort of thing goes on in a lot of situations where there are high-drive working dogs or just normal Mm -hmm. pet dogs that are socialising well, they're working in packs well, they're getting Mm -hmm. along with other dogs, they're getting along with children, they're doing things just fine. In fact, listening to you and Pat have the conversation about having dogs together, we have to do this every year in our boarding kennel. So right now we've got 13 boarding kennels. Mm-hmm. In every boarding kennel, we've got social boarding going on where we've got to take strange yeah. dogs that are unknown to each other. As a caveat, I have to say our staff do a miraculous job of asking, well, it's kind of like a small online interrogation onto the behaviour of their dog. Mm-hmm. Most of the time people are very honest and tell us if their dogs have got problems or not because we want to make sure yeah. they understand you are doing social boarding and your dog is going in with another dog. So, A, we don't want your dog mm-hmm. hurt. And B, we don't want the other dogs hurt as well. So we all have a mass agreement. Everybody agrees on it. And we've got four dogs sharing a kennel, a large kennel space. (laughs) But these Mm -hmm. dogs live, sleep, eating supervised, of course, but they're also socializing out in groups when the girls are cleaning the kennels. And this is a very impressive art form that hundreds of people do successfully well all over the world and have done for a millennia. What I wanted to bring it back was how impressed Mm -hmm. I was watching that video of you galloping around with your dogs 
and the beautiful control you had on them when you asked them to stop, when you asked them to pay attention, even when you were on horseback, all the dogs were doing it and they looked like they were having a great time. And that's what I want the professional world and the public world to understand is that great trainers and people who spend time with their dogs and people who are dedicated to good sports work haven't just got this raging lunatic beast that they have to mm-hmm. bring out, do the sport, and then throw back into a cage, and that's it for the dog. In high 90% of the time, the people that I know about, like we're all around those dogs. I mean, for God's sake, you have a baby strapped to your back and while you're out there doing obedience on the field, and that's what I wanted to talk about. Tell mm-hmm. us about your experience with that because you had to be a mum at the same time with little children who are well-behaved, they come down the club, they behave themselves, they do what you and your husband <laughs> ask them to do to a majority of time. I mean, kids are kids. Yeah. I was there. I was judging on the weekend. Pat was there doing the decoying and you were doing the competitive work and we had two little kids who will behave. They weren't running amok. They weren't causing a problem. But you've also included mm. them in your training life and I'd like to lead into that and talk about being a mum and also being a professional dog person and a competitive sports person as well. Cool. Yeah, it's certainly been a challenge having the kids, but for me, it's the dogs in my life. Of course, the kids are too, but I'm not going to be stopping doing the dogs. So it just had to work. The kids had to be able to come to club. And um, I think them growing up in that environment, and it's just like the dogs, you have the rules and the boundaries around what you allow and setting them up for success. There's, There's a lot of similarities, I think. It's been fun. I've enjoyed, uh, I got Falco in, uh, my son was just over a year. So he was, uh, Falco was my first Malinois and didn't really know how it would go, but yeah, it's gone gone well (laughs) so far. (laughs) Is he in the house much with you guys or is he, because you're on a farm now? Yeah, 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 he is out in the kennel. When we were living more in suburbia, when we lived in Auckland, we had the dogs inside. Now we're out on the farm. It's a little bit muddier. There's a lot more cow poo around for them to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a little bit more. We've got that. We've got the sausage dog inside. She's um, she's our little inside dog, but we spend most of our time outside anyway. So the dogs are out most of the time. Yeah. So he is a, a, an outside dog. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the, the sort of delineation you had to see now that you're into such sport work but with a grounding Mm. in the pack walking stuff. So, you know, a lot of that is managing arousal and sort of keeping Mm. dogs, certainly letting them express it, but keeping them at a manageable level of arousal where the sport work is, you know, maximum usually where where we're not all the time, but we're looking to bring the most oomph that we can from the dog. Tell us a little bit about how you manage that, like keeping your dogs to the point where you can bring down their arousal and back up and, and, you know, how you manage to cue that and have them understand it successfully. I think it's so similar to sports stuff. It's teaching the dog the rules of the game, right? So being able to have them out and being able to take them with the horse and it's so similar. It's being clear and consistent. As I said, setting up for success so that they're not just left out together so there's not going to be any scrap start out or anything like that. Um, There's not going to be behaviour that's going to be done that can, can create a habit. It's lots of nipping in the bud. You know, we have free-range chickens, we've got sheep, we've got cows, and this is our first time that a lot of our dogs have been around those type of animals. So it's been a learning curve for the dogs as well as us. But, yeah, quite similar to the sports stuff in that respect. I think that 
yeah, bring down the arousal, teaching the control. We do a lot of pet dog training stuff as well, even with the Malinois. So they have to be, you know, like calm before they come out of the kennel. They have to be attentive. And for them to be off leash and getting to do the fun stuff, they really have to be proving that they're listening. And yeah, it's just, yeah, all that setting up for success stuff, I think is just really important. Expand on that a little bit. That's an interesting way to put it. In order to get to do the fun stuff, they have to prove that they're listening. Expand on what you mean. Like, give us some practical examples. So, like, when I let them out of their kennels and I'm getting on the horse, they can't just piss off. They're allowed to toilet, but they're not allowed to just piss off into the paddock. You know, they have to be part of the pack walking as well as I teach them a circumference distance that they're allowed to be off leash around me with. So they're not allowed to run 100 metres up the path. It's the same with when I'm on the horse or even when I just have them out and about, they're not allowed to just piss off down to a paddock because obviously that's where mistakes are going to happen. Sheep might get chased and you don't know about it or anything like that. So how do you manage that? Like, especially with the pack walk stuff where you teach them a radius they're allowed to get from you. How, how do yeah. you manage that, especially with a new dog that's not yours? With a new dog, they start out on leash and the relationship's a big thing. Once they get to know you, you transition to a long line. That's where it comes in that it's quite handy that you've got dogs that already know the rules. So the new dog might go out of the radius or circumference area and you can recall them from there eventually you can start correcting them at that point and they'll learn, oh, so outside of there is essentially it's going to be a little bit of discomfort the further I get away and Mm -hmm. then big reward, good feelings within that area because you do get a lot of dogs, especially client dogs that are allowed to do that with their owners that go off leash with their owners and just piss off into the distance and you're like, well, that's not going to work with us. Um, So long line's really helpful there. They get to the radius, you put on the brakes with the long line, the dog kind of turns around, huh? Reward. And then actually when they're off leash, they kind of understand you get that correction, whether it be just a verbal, like an uh uh-uh, or if a dog has a remote collar, you can do like a low level, I guess. I don't know a lot about Nipopo, but almost a little bit of low stim as it gets further away and then Mm. bigger reward as it comes back to you so in time if it's one of my dogs that really knows that they're going to get you know they're going to get a firm voice if they're going out of that boundary which in high arousal it's going to happen they're going to test the boundaries especially running around on the farm and stuff there's an interesting smell over there or they get distracted over there but teaching it consistently and not allowing those slip-ups to happen means that they can then go into the next level of higher arousal. So they have to prove that they will follow those rules of the circumference. They have to recall when I say they're allowed to play, but they're not allowed to brawl play, just things like that. And then then the energy can go up. You know, I want my dogs to be able to be at absolute full arousal around each other and still be making the right choices. And I think that Mm -hmm. that kind of relates to the sport thing as well, that they can be thinking and making right choices in absolutely nutty headspace. And I think that that's kind of where like the ultimate control comes in, I guess. Yeah. When you were sort of starting out and you started Mm -hmm. realizing like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. I'm manipulating these dogs. I'm getting them under control. I have control of this large pack of dogs. Mm -hmm. At what point did you become interested in dog sport? What was that progression like? Was it that you that there's got to be more than this or it just seemed like a natural building block or you wanted something totally different? You know, talk us through that decision point. 
Yeah, I'd seen I'd seen um, like IPO was at the time, wasn't it? Back in the day, and I was interested in that. We had quite a small club here. I couldn't really get the motivation to go. It didn't really line up with when I could go to club. So it was a little bit longer until I got into that stuff. I think that I was, I went quite hard on the pack walking stuff, got staff and started to burn out a little bit, I think. You know, you have so many dogs, you're doing so much with dogs, you're keeping the quality of the work up and the care up. And especially when you're working by yourself and you've got your staff, it can get a little hard. And I think that the bite work stuff really saved that passion with dogs for me. So it was 2017 and I started training with this kind of old school personal protection style guy over here, kind of a bit old school yank and crank, on the sleeve, pulling behavior. And that's where I met Mikhail, who's my partner, and Ricky Bruce, who you know from the club as well. And then early 2018, Mikhail went over to Australia to a APPDA, which is another bite sport. He went to a decoy camp over there and he met Cole Benji. So the boys came back. Oh, right. So he didn't know him from together. New Zealand. They nah, met we didn't know Cole. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, right. I thought you guys knew each other. So Mikhail met Cole on that trip over there. And then the boys came back and we started training together. You know, we're into the, I guess, the more evolved from the personal protection stuff that we were doing. Suit work. Cole was bright and starry eyed, starting out his decoying. He was at, he had done IPO before then. I think he was already a decoy in that, but he was getting really into the suit stuff at that stage. And from then we built up Apex after about a year. We had some people come out and do some seminars and it kind of grew from there. We started training with Jason Pye and we had Kevin and Yin join, all the people that were trialing at the club. It slowly evolved. I mean, everyone says COVID slowed everyone down and it certainly did with us as well. And it also was a matter of finding good dogs as well. I've heard you before say that it's it used to be quite hard over in Australia to find capable dogs for the high-pressure suit sports stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely the case here, which is why I've been investing in learning about the lines, bringing over and starting breeding for the club, breeding for New Zealand. And, yeah, we're just really excited about where the sport's going to go. I'm excited to see now that you guys have had a trial and there's some good dogs there. And so now you've sort of can start putting those together and develop a, a bit of a gene pool that is local to you and, and you know is capable. Let's let's Absolutely. rewind just a few minutes. You said something really interesting that I want to sort of tease apart. You said that you were approaching burnout from doing the pack walk stuff and that yeah. it was doing the sport stuff that sort of prevented that. That's my shtick. That's what I constantly am telling dog trainers. I'm constantly saying to people, (laughs) you're going to be dealing with people's annoying pet dogs all day. You're going to be facing the same problems over and over. And certainly what what I found for myself is I started to resent dogs a little bit, you know, Mm -hmm. like when you're you're just dealing with the same problem over and over. I had to check myself one day. I was at an event, a party of some kind, and someone asked me about what kind of dog they should get. And I said a cat. And and then (laughs) I, I just... On the way home, I was like, why the fuck did you say that? Like, why okay. why would you talk anybody out of getting dogs? You're the guy that tells mm. everybody to get 15 dogs, right? But yeah. I just found that I was beginning to resent dogs and, and I was mm-hmm. beginning to face the same problem over and over and love was going. And that's, yeah. you know, 
I think what we face a lot. So talk us through like, how did that happen for you? And, and did you know that sports was going to be the rescue to that? Or did you, did it happen natural? And you were like, oh, wow, I feel differently now. Or were you looking for a new feeling? Um, I think it came naturally. It, as you say, like you're facing the same problems with pet dogs over and over. You're fixing people's dogs as opposed to making them their best possible selves. You know, it's quite often somebody gets a dog that's too much for them and you're teaching them the place work and you're trying to bring down the arousal so that it's livable for these people. And then you get the sports dog where it's like this huge, powerful dog and you're just creating it to be better and better and better. Obviously, when we've got our pet dogs, then we're we're kind of doing the same thing in a respect, but to be able to take them out on the trial field and show the world what you can do and what the dog can do. And it's a feeling that I've, I've never had before. It's, it saved me really with, with the dogs. <laughs> I think for me, it's part of, you know, when you're fixing the same issues over and over with pet dogs, you kind of end up doing the training to the dogs, you know, and as yes. much as we, as much as we want to always be training for the dogs, very often mm-hmm. when you're on the clock and people are like, you know, I have a limited budget on how much I can spend on this training and I need the dog to be fitting into my life. You find, yeah. or I certainly found that you sometimes are like, okay, fuck, like I know how to get this done fast. This isn't the problem solving. This isn't the, like, I can't get to the deep root of this issue. I've got three sessions with you dog and like, well, I've got yeah. to, you know, I've got to stop you running at the front door every time this happens. And so you sort of yeah. get a little bit just like uh, back through the paces again. But what I found when you're dealing with the pet, like, sorry, the the sport dog stuff, and especially when you're in the community of sport dog people, is Mm -hmm. the brainstorming that happens. You know, when you sit around, it's one of the things that I love at training when someone's dog does something weird. Like we got a dog in the club at the moment that moves at the speed of light, but hates to jump, right? Like he, Uh, he, his entries are so fast. It's, it's terrifying, but it's borderline dangerous because his last step he's taking his last step as he's biting you, right? Because he doesn't oh, wow. just run straight in on the bite. And so, sure. you know, we all sort of grade around and all, like all the decoys are standing there like, okay, how can we do this? Like, what can we block him with? How can we effectively do this? How can we, you know, improve this for the dog? To me is that's dog training, right? Like that's, yes. that's where I'm like, oh, this is the community that I, I enjoy. This is what I want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. This is the problem solving that is fun, Absolutely. So yeah. tell us about, have you guys had much of that and and being a new club and you've probably got a lot of Unix. I know you've got like people like Jason, who's old school at dog sports. Like he's, I, mean, I don't mean old school training. I mean like old school, been in it for a long time. Oh yeah. Like super experienced, really yeah. good trainer. How are you balancing that against people who are brand new and are just like, oh, just, I, I watched John Wick. Yeah, I have this dog. Yeah. I, I mean, we get a lot of people that will come to club, be interested, come for a couple of times and not commit, which I think is like, the problem with a lot of clubs, especially sports starting out, right? I'd like to think that's not unique to us. No. Um, <laughs> but then we've got our really committed people. Yeah, having somebody like Jason, I think he's like doing his 28th or 29th decoying at, at a trial coming up over in Australia. We're so lucky to have his expertise and it's fantastic. I just wanted to get back to when you were saying about the pet dog training stuff and mm-hmm. you make a good point about being able to like nut it out with the other with the other trainers and with the other handlers about what to do with these dogs. That's kind of how I felt in the beginning with the pack walking stuff with the community that we created. You know, we'd have a slightly more difficult dog. We were walking together, we were working together. And I think that it just got to the point where we'd kind of figured out most of the problems. There's always going to be that dog that you're going to be like, oh, wow, this is a 
new kind of dog, new kind of problem. But we'd kind of gotten to the point where it was just easy. We had our system, we went through our system. And I found that with like the board and trains as well with the clients that you would have like a 100% expectation on the dog. So you're putting in like three or four weeks of hard work to make this dog perfect. Whereas the owners are happy with like a 20%, right? Yeah. They get the dog back like, they're like, oh, wow, he's amazing. But you've almost put in more effort than was necessary. I needed to put in that effort to keep the passion alive in myself. But when the dogs would go home and they'd revert so quickly back to where the owner was expecting, where the owner's Mm. happy, which is like, you know, the basic recall, the dog staying on the bed. They never use the off-leash heel or anything like that. I think that that's where at least my burnout came from. As you say, like creating these dogs and building these dogs is, uh, and working with these other handlers is just for these knees. When you say burnout, define that a little bit for us, like get a bit more specific. Like what did that actually feel like? It's one of the things that, you know, a lot of dog trainers talk about burnout. I, I've experienced it. I think, you know, I think everybody will at one point or another, but mm-hmm. I think people's individual experience of it can vary quite a bit, you know, like what, mm-hmm. you know, is it just a loss of passion? Is it just fatigue? You know, like what did that feel like for you? I think it was, yeah, the loss of passion, finding kind of the, not the bare minimum in terms of what a lot of people would say the bare minimum is, because I still was putting a hell of a lot of work into the dogs and the care and the service, but not doing that extra that made it super special. That's where your own passion comes from, I think, like where your own personal satisfaction, I guess, that kind of dwindled down, got staff, had my kids. I think it was just, uh, yeah, the passion really was kind of it. Didn't really want to be taking on new dogs. So things were starting to slow down, but at the same time, COVID happened. So we lost about 30% of our clients in the first lockdown. So then it was kind of like after that was like, okay, we really need to get more clients, doing a ton of work to get new clients to build that client list back up while not being super passionate about it anymore. I think it just took its toll eventually. But we're super lucky because I got to sell it to one of our staff members that's like bright and super passionate girl, Steph. She was sitting with Serena at the trial doing the the book work and she has just come in and she's done amazing things with the the service. And it was exactly the kind of person that I wanted to pass it on to. It was like me five years ago, you know, (laughs) and hopefully that she won't get to that point. But if she does, then hopefully she'll be able to sell it on to somebody else that's keen and passionate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And she can get her own sport dog and transition out like you. Well, She's going to. I've told her, yeah, she's she's going to get one of our puppies soon. So <laughs> that'll be good for her. I just want to circle back to the conversation a little bit before, and this is for my own interest, so it's a little bit self-serving yeah. here. I really would like to know about your introduction to Falco and your horses because I'm not really mm. a horse guy. That's not my shtick at all. Okay. In fact, I have a bit of a mistrust of horses since I had an incident. when <laughs> I was wrong. like, Well, I've been on them, I've ridden them, and but I, I don't know horses well. Like I think they're beautiful, they're fascinating, and I'd love to know a little bit more about them. But sure. tell us about your introduction to Falco and your horses as a little puppy, introducing him to the horses and how the horses felt about it. Because there's people online who have horses and have dogs and also yeah. don't know how to put them together. And I've had people messaging mm. me before and saying, oh, you should have somebody on the show who works with horses and dogs. So perfect scenario. Oh, We've cool. got you. 
Well, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm an expert equestrian. I did horse riding as a teenager, was my passion, moved to Auckland, couldn't really afford it. So I've only gotten my horse about, oh, earlier this year, April this year. So I'm quite new to it. And I already had Falco. He was already just about two years old at that stage. Basically took him out into the pad. He already knows some basic rules around other dogs and how to interact with things other than dogs as well, that you're not rude, you're not pushy, you don't race up to things that you're unsure of. Those are just kind of like my rules that I've put into him from a young puppy, just for safety kind of thing. Just had him around the horse. It took me a while before I rode the horse with him. I'm not going to lie and say that he was perfect from the start. He was definitely quite stimulated by the horse, especially when we would pick up speed, we'd go for a canter. With him, I decided to wait until the moment where he made a wrong choice and then go into back-chaining it. So with most dogs, I would kind of correct the first signs, right? That stimulation, the maybe the eyeing a little bit. But because I know this dog and I know the better route for him is to do that back chaining. I waited. So the first time I rode him, Falco was kind of, he was kind of looking, he wasn't looking at the horse like it was prey. He was more just getting an arousal and adrenaline kick from the horse moving around mm. at speed, right? And I think it was the maybe the third ride and he'd kind of like built up more confidence around the horse. I had an e-collar on him. I had the remote in my hand. I was cantering up a hill and I saw at the exact moment when Falco decided, mm, I might jump up a little bit and have a little nibble at the horse's nose. So he'd made that choice in his head and he kind of went to jump up. And that's when he got a reasonably high e-collar correction at that point. It was an extinguishing event, I call it. I wanted him to know that that was the exact point he was doing wrong. This is also a dog that understands what no is and doesn't take offense to that. That's another reason why I chose that route with him. He's not a dog that takes a correction and suffers from it or uh, gets a bit nervous around it or would be kind of averse to the horse after that. So he took that very well. He wasn't bothered by it. I actually expected him to still show behaviours like his lead-up behaviours, which were kind of like pacing around the horse a little bit of <laughs> vocalisation as we were going a little bit faster. But to my surprise and my luck, just that single correction has seemed to take out all of that. And that's not to say that eventually he might start thinking about those things again. I'm always cautious and I'm always careful, especially with those high caliber dogs, about what could happen and setting up for that success. But so far, so good. He's very neutral to the horse now. And it was just kind of like a one-time learning event that seems to have worked. I was just going to add to that for people listening at home who might have something to say about correcting the dog with an e-collar at the start when he was about to jump up to the horse's nose. Obviously, before that happened, as you said, he knows what no means and he's mm -hmm. also probably had oh, a lot absolutely. more training before that event mm -hmm. occurred. And that's probably an important insert to add there is that that yes. wouldn't be the first time that that happened. That wouldn't be the first time that the dog understood what that meant. Absolutely. The concern for a lot of people is what if that had the adverse effect and then the dog thought, well, the horse calls that correction. Now I need to be more aggressive towards the horse. However, 
that's what happens when you don't know how to use corrections properly. That's what happens when people rush things and don't know how to use yeah. tools and then they do create that conflict situation. Absolutely. There's a lot of grounding work that has to be done to understand that and it's a lead up to mm-hmm. understand that as well. As you said, Falco understands what no means. He also knows yep. what the consequences mean for that as well. I've had similar situations mm-hmm. with my dogs where I've done similar sort of things and people said, why did you do that? Weren't you concerned that there could have been multiple streams of outcomes? Oh, if wow. I hadn't prepared it, if I hadn't done the grounding work first, of course I would be. Yeah, absolutely. I, absolutely, yeah. Be- because yeah, the dog doesn't. That, yeah. Well, that's right, because the dog doesn't know what to do. It doesn't have an idea in its head of how to resolve that situation or how to de-escalate it. And in many mm-hmm. situations where we're using our intelligence in training with training direction like that, what we're teaching the dog is to de-escalate the moment. Like we're teaching the dog, understand that you went to do this. That's not what is allowable. You can't do that. You can't escalate into something else as well, because that's only going to lead to further discomfort. And the, the discomfort mm-hmm. could be a lot more negative punishment. It could mean that you don't come on rides anymore. It may, might mean that you have to Absolutely. finish what you're doing. There's an escalation path into a lot of other different areas. And it concerns people. People go, why wouldn't you do 12 months worth of training with other methods to try and resolve that situation? But for me, that is just absurd. I know I'm vocally outspoken about those sort of things. It's just absurd because I Mm -hmm. love it. I love it when I can see an older dog who hasn't had a social or a generalization with horses before, and then being able to be Mm. introduced to it, understand that, yes, I am a little stimulated in the horse's presence. I do get a little aroused when I see the horse starting to pick up speed. But I also know from my training, my grounding, my pre-work that's being done with my handler, that anytime Mm. you say that's not allowable, and then you'll also take measures of, I would assume that you control the speed of the horse you understand Absolutely. that you've got to incrementally make things happen to pair the the way the horse works with the dog. And I'm not trying to put words yes. in your mouth because I don't really know. I don't train yeah. horses and dogs together. And I guess I'm yeah. very, very curious about how people do it because I've seen a horse trample a dog before that got under the dog's feet. Yeah. Fortunately, mm-hmm. the good luck story, the dog was okay, a couple of minor bumps and bruises and everything like that. And the horse mm-hmm. taught the dog a lesson on that day as well. It was natural selection. The horse sorted the situation out. But in other situations, that could be life and death. One ton animal running over the top of, you know, a 40 kilo animal or however much a horse weighs running over the top of a dog could be the end of the dog's life. And it's a situation that I know needs a lot of pre-thought, a lot of control, a lot of measures in place. So I'm very curious how people do it. I like watching those type of things. I know a lot about dogs. I've been around dogs for a, for a bunch of time, but horses, they're not my thing. Yeah, I will add that the horse is very well behaved. He's absolutely bomb-proof. And free to me, he'd been around dogs a lot. So I didn't have to worry about, obviously, I'd protect the horse at all costs, but I didn't have to worry about his behavior in terms of I wasn't training the horse, I was training the dog. So I got lucky in that respect. And yeah, as you say, there's tons of groundwork. It's the way I've raised him. That was the biggest correction that dog's ever gotten. I'll also add, it's not like left, right and centre, he's getting buzzed. But he does have an understanding of no means no. And it's not a personal attack. I think a lot of people see correction as that it has to be so personal to the dog that its mentality's hurt. This dog is a very strong mentally dog and a correction like that, he goes, bah, and then he's completely over it. 
no ill feelings towards the horse, no ill feelings towards me, obviously. And it might not be the route that I take with all dogs. But the question was about Falco, and yeah, mm. that's what I did specifically for his case with that. If it was some of my other dogs, I would have corrected at a lower, it might have just needed to be an ah uh-uh for the circling or the vocalizing, and that would have been enough. But I know with a dog like Falco how intense he can get that if I didn't correct at the end event, which could happen, which is mouth on horse, that that was always, I guess, on the cards with super high arousal, if that makes sense. Um, That wasn't extinguished, so it was always under the surface that it might get to the point where the horse goes a bit wild, I lose a bit of control, things go a bit crazy, and he hasn't been told, no, you can't do that. And then he's like, oh, that's in my repertoire, I might try and do that now. So hopefully we've put that in place that... um, Yeah, I think for me, that's one of the biggest draws of proper balance training is how quickly you can just communicate to a dog, hey, don't do that. I want Mm. you to come on this mad adventure with me. We're going to go riding horses together. We're going to lead this awesome life. And I just need you to understand this so that we can get to doing that quickly. Mm. And I think the alternative (laughs) is, you know, you can spend weeks or months doing the desensitized counter condition and can it work? Like probably, (laughs) yep. But like then it becomes... It, it sort of draws so much attention to it that it's always going to be something you're worried about, you're struggling with. And and mm. and it's not, that's not the journey you're on with that dog, right? Like that dog yeah. is what's going to take you weeks and months and, and well, the dog's whole life is working towards mm. the sports that you're competing in. That's where you're doing the slow foundation. Hey, you understand this teaching him, you know, but with that stuff, it's like lifestyle. It's like, hey man, don't do that. Mm-hmm. If you do that, we can't lead this awesome life and I want this for you. I don't want to contain you. I don't want to have to manage you so tightly. You live on a farm now. So like, hey, don't do that. Dog goes, got it. And then he goes, sweet, let's get on with our awesome lives from here. Yeah, totally, totally. Would it be fair to say for people listening at home that you would encourage them not to train the dog and the horse at the same time to accept each other? Like the horse would first have to understand how to have a tolerance of dogs first, and then you would introduce the new, I'm not going to say rogue dog, but the new dog yeah. into the system that the horse is already stabilised in the procedure. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. Because I've spoken to people before about this, and again, very limited knowledge on my part, where they've tried to introduce a dog to a horse and a horse to a dog that don't really know how to behave around each other, and it's just been a disastrous event. Yeah, it's kind of like teach a green decoy, you have an experienced dog. Teach a green Mm. dog, you have an experienced decoy, right? Good analogy. Um, Again, I didn't train the horse. I haven't raised the horse. The person who had him before me has done an amazing job and he's very dog neutral. But yeah, I would definitely say that trying to socialize the horse and the dog at the same time just seems like I'm sure some people can do it. Yeah, I'm not saying people can't do it. I'm sure some great dog and horse people could do it, but... I'd refrain from that personally. Hey, Gabby, I know you're busy. We won't keep you too much longer. But the last thing I wanted to ask you about was like the intro to sport work. Like you had really nice obedience. Like it was very impressive to watch. Where did you learn that? Who were the sort of influences on you for that? Noting that, you know, you're in New Zealand. There's not a school you can just pop to to learn that. You had to put in the work and and travel and digest information. Tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about what that looked like for you. He's a competitive obedience guy. He's called Alex Robinson. He's over here. He even travels the States doing seminars for his competitive obedience. And he's incredible. He's got an amazing foundation and system and teaching the dogs how to learn, how to think, 
And I see that in especially the high levels of PSA. Obviously, I haven't gone through them yet, but I'm working on teaching the two at the moment. That the dog, it can't just do what you tell it to do. It has to have an understanding of its own thought process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Is that correct in saying that it has to be able to make choices on the field in real time? And Alex, he's amazing at that. So I've been following his system for a bit. I can't say that I have fully followed it because <laughs> I've snuck in a few of my own things, probably to my own detriment. But um, <laughs> yeah, <he's, laughs> I'm lucky to have found him. And he's got an amazing understanding of drives as well. So Yeah, that's cool. What's his name again? Alex Robinson. Alex Robinson, does he have yeah. uh, online stuff or like it's just yeah. quick fix dog training on Instagram uh, yeah, with right, underscores okay. in between, which is funny because his system is not at all about a quick fix. It's long <laughs> and tedious, <laughs> but yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you've been learning from him, then you're a testament to it because it was like really nice. It was really nice showing that you put on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. So, Gabby, like I said, we won't keep you. It's a busy day. We're in the void as we're recording, you know, the space between Christmas and New Year's where everybody's yeah. with family doing a million things, but the chores continue. So we pretend that we're <laughs> resting, but we never really are. If people want to get in contact with you, first of all, thanks for the time. Thanks for chatting with us. Um, oh, thank you. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? What can you offer people? Message me probably on Instagram would be the best. Yeah. Urban Lupine, urban underscore Lupine. I'm very happy to answer any questions and help anyone out in any way. Obviously still very new to the sports stuff, but multi-dog questions and drive and arousal questions. If I can help in any way, people are welcome to private message me and yeah, cool. yeah I can see what I can do. Nice one. Glenn, got anything to add, mate? Just thank you very much, Gabby. It was an honour and a privilege to be able to judge you and watch such fine work. You oh, definitely you. deserved your first leg in PSA 1 and it was a very proud moment for you and New Zealand and also for for me to come over there for my very first time to New Zealand. It was wonderful. You made us feel very comfortable and very welcome over there and it was a wonderful time. So thank you very much, Gabby, and thanks for also letting me watch your dog romp around in paddocks with your horses. <laughs> wonderful thank you guys so much for coming over it's so cool to have the community over there and i wish it was just easier to go back and forth with a dog because i'd be over there with my dog constantly mm, yeah. but yeah it is what it is we'll get you guys over lots how you're looking what you guys got a plan to try and have another trial or what what's yeah that absolutely like for you guys? the tricky thing is that quite a few of our dogs in that trial you know it was like their retirement trial yeah um, that we'd like aging out pulled them yeah. out of yeah we'd like yeah they'd aged out they'd aged out a couple of years ago and then we've pulled them out because we you know we've been training the sport for years with them never had a trial here comes the trial oh come on mate you know like nevi and my ginger dickhead that made a fool of himself that used to be a lot better trained than he is now um, <laughs> We've got a few out, but we've got some puppies coming through. You know, Ricky's got his new puppy from us and we've got some dogs up and coming. Whether or not they'll be ready next year or we're going to have to wait until 2025, we're just going to have to see. But we're definitely keen to have another one as soon as possible. Yeah, cool. 
I'm excited. I think it's exciting mm-hmm. to watch you guys and watch it flourish. And I think we're we're kind of the same here. We've got a lot of young dogs coming into the sport. So I think mm-hmm. in the next two years, we're, we're going to see a big explosion in Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Certainly that's what well, we're working towards for sure. Yeah, there's probably quite a few members of our club that will come over. I think mid-year you guys are doing something exciting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so we'll probably come over for that. And yeah, be a good time. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for doing it. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe, do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then just go do it to another one. Uh, if you want to support the show, best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you extra content, giant backlog of stuff, more stuff going forward, giant backlog of stuff you can check out. We do live streams in there. There's all kinds of things you can sign up for. Another way to support the show is you could get into spring, buy yourself some cool merch. One of my favorite things, seeing people post photos of themselves in their our t-shirts makes they me happy every time. just did the other day, two cool story, show us your dog shirts. I saw that. Yep. That was an with, awesome with, one. I yep. think tartan pants on underneath it, just to add yep. flair to Christmas it. Christmas outfits. Yep. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is to jump into the Facebook discussion group. There's a lot of cool stuff happening in there, a lot mm. of conversations. You could group source some information. But if you've got something that you want to talk to us directly about, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Love you. Goodbye.